Welcome to the Ogletree Deacons Podcast, a brief discussion of compelling legal issues and practical insights. Please note that the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be, nor should it be construed as legal advice. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. Please enjoy the program. Welcome back to this little podcast that Frank Davis and I are doing. This is John Serma out of the Houston Ogletree office. I've got Frank Davis from the Dallas Ogletree office. Um, Today we're going to do a little departure from what we've done in the past with this podcast. And um, we're actually going to be responding to a LinkedIn post. The LinkedIn post suggested that Michael Rubin, who's another one of our partners, and I do a podcast on the issue of job hazard analysis, pretest planning, the things that need to be documented in the job hazard analysis, you know, whether folks are spending the right amount of time on the right topics, you know, whether there's anything from a legal perspective that needs to be covered, et cetera. Michael's a little tied up and so that we can get this back to folks on a timely basis. Um, I suggested to my podcast partner, Frank Davis, that we do a podcast on this and in response to this uh, LinkedIn post. Um, Fortunately, as many of you are aware, Frank is game for just about everything. Um, And so here we are today. We're going to have a conversation about that. That's awesome, John. Thanks. You you know, when you were saying pre-task, it almost sounded like pre-test, but pre-task is what we're talking about, uh, evaluating the job pre-task. As long as we're talking about podcast ideas for the future, I'll propose that one that we should talk about uh, drug testing and and especially as it relates to Region 6 and and how that uh, impacts the not only the the job safety, but even the job hazard analysis, right? I'm I'm wondering if that bleeds over a little bit. I think that's too much to include in the podcast today, but I I certainly feel like that's something that we could piggyback on uh, in a podcast maybe next week. Well, and in fact, um, one of our other partners and I are going to be writing an article about something like that, and and we had just talked about that yesterday, so. I think that's timely, pretty meaningful to do. And, and, you know, we've got another podcast that we're kind of kicking around, you know, kind of going on this little bit of a deviation from the norm um, that came from another listener. And they suggested that, um, you know, we talk about things like the cost of an OSHA violation, the loss of reputation that's involved when you have that, issues with insurance and insurance premiums, issues with obtaining jobs, et cetera. But, yeah, now we're probably talking three or four weeks down the road from now or three or four podcasts down the road from now. Yeah, we'll have to work that one in also. Yeah. Uh, but the drug, the, the drug issue, uh, I'm, I'm voting for next week. We can do that. But, we can do that. Yeah, but, okay, cool. But without delay, let's, let's get into the, to the job hazard assessment or the, the, uh, the pre-job briefings, uh, as it were, um, that, that, that we got asked about or that you and Michael got asked about. I mean, first of all, I think our audience probably is you know, sophisticated enough to know what a job hazard analysis or pretest plan is. But you know, I do think that 
um, you know, that's something that is, you know, particularly used or, or used most often, you know, in certain industries, you know, certainly construction being one of them, the oil field's another one, you know, there are certain other, you know, sort of non-routine task type employment that folks often do them in. But for the rest of the audience that doesn't really have a familiarity with what those things are, would you mind having or, or giving a little bit of an explanation of what a pre-test plan or job hazard analysis or job safety analysis is for our audience? Yeah, I think that that probably is a good place to start. The uh, standards uh, have standards in different locations. Um, the one that that I think maybe would be easiest to talk about is the one that's the most clearly defined what the expectations are. And and that's in, in the transmission and distribution standards uh, under 1926, 952, and 1910-269 that basically have five parts. Uh, before you begin any task, uh, the expectation is that on a daily basis, uh, a manager uh, sits down with the crew and they identify the hazards uh, the work procedures, any special precautions that need to be taken, energy source controls that need to be managed, and then any personal protective equipment that must be used. Uh, you know, that's the broad stroke. That's the broad stroke. Uh, I think from, uh, and then we'll talk best practices here, but whenever I think about what I'm going to be doing for pre-job planning or, or when conducting a, a job hazard analysis, I, I want to go a little bit deeper than that. I, I tend to like a plan that thinks about what, what's been done in previous days, uh, how similar or dissimilar the activities are going to be on this day. You identify any of those risks uh, that uh, are likely to face today. That's the way I usually approach these items to, to answer your question, John. You mentioned a couple of concepts there, and, and I want to kind of focus on them separately. And the first concept is, you know, you, you mentioned managers and, you know, we've both seen, you know, hundreds, if not thousands of, of JSAs, pre-test plans, whatever the case might be. And, you know, you have, you know, there's kind of an interplay between management in kind of the higher or highest levels, uh, whether it be safety management or operations management, that provides a certain amount of input on those documents. And then you have kind of the more localized job-specific management that's involved in inputting that information. You know, from the standpoint of kind of what you see as best practices or what you see as, you know, kind of the optimal way to do that, you know, kind of where is the dividing line in your mind between what that kind of higher level of manager is involved in? In my mind, it's it's kind of generating the form and the checkboxes and, you know, the options that are available and kind of the, the, the process and procedure. And then, you know, where where do you see the, the lower level, the, the frontline supervisor, the foreman, the lead, uh, and what their responsibilities are with respect to documenting the the JAJ and the JSA or pre-test plan? Uh, you know, I think that's a difficult question to answer generically because of the different skill levels and the different industries and the different size of companies. I think you've got to, you know, the standard references 
the employee in charge. And as you know, OSHA has a pretty broad definition of what a supervisor is, depending on their end game during an inspection. But if I think the person that you have to have in charge or the person that you have to have com- help complete that form is the person that, that is boots on ground uh, that'll be there directing the work. Someone that's ideally that has eyes on the project, especially if it's a unique project for a unique day. Uh, so they can see if, for instance, there's um, inconsistencies in elevations, there might be muddy conditions, uh, there might be wet conditions, there might be insects, snakes, uh, there might be a heat issue that's not something that that someone could identify remotely. And so I think my preference would be to have somebody in charge, uh, supervisory level person in charge, that's uh, at least supervising the preparation uh, or at least leading the discussion, but then having involved at the same time rank and file, non-management, non-supervisory employees that are offering their input as to what they see and, and to, to the hazards that they assess, and ideally to their own concerns uh, about the, their own uh, safe operation. For instance, if heavy equipment is involved and the, there's a rank and file employee expected to operate that heavy equipment and the conditions are not ideal, then you'd sure hope that that employee would speak up and say, this makes me uncomfortable. Uh, let's let's talk about how to do this in a way that makes me feel comfortable. But I think that's something you've got to develop over time and absolutely have to include an employee uh, that's focused but needs to be engaged and ideally be engaged in a language that they understand. Uh, often on these crews, you have people that, that uh, have a primary language that is not English, uh, I think. Usually your superintendents will speak the same language, but it's something you've got to be sure of so you don't lose anything in that communication. But by involving those employees and meaningfully involving those rank and file employees, I believe an employer gets to a better job hazard assessment or or a better pre-job briefing. And Frank, your statements there kind of capture part of the post that hinted around without getting directly into the subject. And I don't think it was intentionally hinting around. I just think that the way the author drafted it, that's how it came out. But, you know, the question comes down in in a lot of cases. And, and, you know, I I get asked all the time by employers, you know, kind of what my preferences or what I think the standards require relative to preparation of those documents and whether, you know, for lack of a better term, whether it's, it's, you know, kind of the, you know, superintendent. And, and when I'm thinking superintendent, I'm thinking like, you know, running six, eight, 10 crews or the supervisor, you know, running his or her crew, their foreman lead, whatever, running his or her crew that should be preparing the document. And basically they prep the document and then talk to their folks about the document and use that as the discussion tool and then basically just get folks to sign off on it. The discussion should ultimately lead to the completion of the document. I mean, there's, you know, much like the document is pre-populated with certain fields and has certain check boxes in it or or certain questions that have to be answered. Yeah, I I don't think that it's necessarily a bad idea for the, 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 the lead, the foreman, the supervisor, whatever that person's title is, to, to have, you know, sort of started 
sketching it out and, and, and started completing it. I kind of don't care when the piece of paper is completed. I think it depends on learning style and teaching style of the, of the person that's leading the meeting. Maybe it's easier for them to outline their primary talking points and to be prepared with the talking points by putting it on a, on a written pre-job briefing form of some sort. And if they feel more comfortable with that, I, I'm fine with that myself. But uh, I think the the key is to, to to not pencil whip it, right? That phrase where they just fill it out and say, okay, everybody, y'all all know what you're doing. Uh, please read this and sign it, which uh, I, I think doesn't capture the spirit of what the standards are asking for. Uh, I think uh, the the standards are asking for that discussion and for that human interaction. In fact, the standards don't specifically require written form, yet somehow it's all been reduced to creating a, a piece of paper. Uh, so my thought is, and this goes to the union avoidance uh, discussion I had with, with Philip Russell a few weeks ago, it's about involving those employees and giving them a voice and making sure those employees, the rank and file employees, uh, are interacting with with somebody with some kind of management authority to, to raise issues and to have those addressed. And it's the communication. That's the important piece. It's not text messaging. It's not writing it on a job safety analysis. It's the communication to me that is the critical piece. Yes, I like to have the documentation because I like to be able to point to it. Uh, you know, one time I, I, I've said this on this podcast more than once, and I've said it in live presentations with Casey Perkins, the former area director for Austin OSHA, that Casey Perkins once said to me, Frank, I know it doesn't have to be in writing, but how do I know what happened if the client didn't write it down? And that's been my operating principle since about 2008, is if it's not written down, then it's, it, OSHA may not accept it. So I think it is important to have it written down. And I'm not particularly concerned when it's written down, but what I am concerned about when I'm evaluating the documents or when I'm uh, interviewing witnesses is that there was a meaningful communication and briefing done uh, between super, the supervisor or the employee in charge and the rank and file employees. Maybe I was not clear in my comment. My concern is you know, that essentially, and, and, you know, this kind of goes to the pencil whipping piece. And, and I'm sure you've had this experience in your practice as well as I have, where you can look at the last 15 JSAs and they're all identical except for the order of the signatures. And sometimes even the order of the signatures is identical. And so I'm not kind of consistent with the avoidance of pencil whipping where I'm coming from and where my comment was meant to come from is I think the content of the JSA should also reflect the input of the line level employees, the, the worker bees that are actually doing the work and whatever feedback they provided that first level supervisor during the meeting that is impactful with respect to the pre-job plan, the, the, the safety on the job, et cetera. I'd see what you're saying. And I agree with that. Of course, if if a, a rank and file employee points out something uh, that's not already, you know, if it's a pre-drafted, if they point out something that makes sense to add, then I, I think it's important to document. But it's also important uh, for that communication and to build up that relationship between a supervisor and the employee to say, hey, what the employee says is important enough 
to actually make a note of it. I, I, I think you're right. I think it's critical to add those observations if it's, if it's a meaningful observation, recommendation, or suggestion. Let me ask you this, Frank, and I've had this come up on a number of occasions where, you know, with, with technology and, and the fact that we all or almost all carry a computer that was far more effective than the computers you and I had when we were in college and law school. And they're also audio recorders, video recorders, picture takers, internet accessors, et cetera. You know, there's a lot of talk and I hear a lot of feedback from folks about, you know, employing technology for purposes of their JSA pretest plan documentation, JHA. And there's a lot of back and forth about, can I use these other forms of technology? And you can use whatever technology you want, whatever technology works for you. But there are certain issues relative to retention and holding those those types of things. And you know, when you're in, in especially in, in, in certain types of field conditions, you know, does that technology work as well as it should? So that, you know, to the point that Casey made and, and you know, every other area director and assistant area director I've ever worked with has basically made, which is unless there's a document of some sort, and they don't necessarily mean a piece of paper, but some sort of documentary evidence, something we can look at that proves when something happened and that it actually happened, that you can you can retrieve it or you can access it or that it actually exists there. What are your thoughts about you know some of these efforts to try to to do the JHA JSA pretest plan via technology alone with no paper? I think technology is fine if it works, right? I mean, that's the phrase. If, if it works and it records what you need it to, I think it's fine. But think about all the people you see sitting around a, a lunchroom table uh, that are supposedly having lunch together, texting or communicating. Uh, that's the thing that I worry about with technology is the technology replacing the, the person-to-person communication. Again, I think that's key for the standards, the standards envisioned the OSHA standards envision actual verbal communication. Uh, and while we're recording and documenting on these devices or uh, whatever the form of, of electronic record keeping, they're, they're, they're working up for these job hazard assessments. I, I feel like that it's getting away from the, the key component every time you put a layer like that in. And, and for maintaining the paperwork, uh, if it can all get uh, uploaded and saved, that's fantastic, especially if it can get uploaded and saved in a searchable format. So you, if there's a specific type of, of hazard that you're trying to go back and show you've identified in, in the past, I think that's fantastic. That's incredibly helpful for what we do uh, when we're litigating. I would never want, and I'm going to keep coming back to this, and I apologize in advance for it, John. But I would never want technology or any written process to get in the way of the person-to-person communication. And I would want to train my crews and my supervisors to get used to talking to each other and having those candid conversations where the supervisor says, here's what we're going to do. And where the employee is confident enough to say, I don't think that's a good idea, boss, and here's why. That's what I worry about when we're so worried about documentation and so worried about technology and those advancements is I fear we're leaving behind the importance of the communication. 
Uh, but to the extent we're not, if technology works, I dig it. Uh, I'm, I'm actually pretty good with it, even though I sometimes joke about not being good with it. And notwithstanding the fact I had challenging had challenges this morning getting my microphone to work. We need to start winding down and wrapping up this podcast. You know, we're getting to that time, probably stretching our uh, listeners' attention a little thin. I think that, you know, a lot of folks kind of overlook that the whatever the documentation is that's generated from whatever the meeting is that the employer holds and, and, and has their crews hold has other impacts outside of just the OSHA arena, just outside of crew safety and that, you know, those documents are also, you know, when there's an incident of some sort, they're often also used in litigation and, you know, they're often scrutinized by attorneys who are looking to recover on behalf of an injured person, whether it's an employee, a different contractor's employee, or a member of the public. These documents don't just exist in kind of a isolated silo or maybe better, an isolated vault someplace and never get touched again, except in the event of, of you know, something happening where OSHA shows up and, and asks for them. But that instead, these documents can often be used for other purposes, whether it be litigation, whether it be auditing by the customers or clients. Uh, you, you mentioned the, the transmission business. You know, a lot of times the, the utility is going to be looking at what its contractors did, or they can be looked at for purposes of other government compliance, you know, whether it be in the environmental space or, you know, some other space where, you know, folks want to see what was actually going on on the job and what the, the folks that were actually doing the work were documenting as part of the job. And I'd be curious to know kind of, you know, what your thoughts on that are and closing this podcast episode out. Yeah. I, you know, I used to do a lot of non-subscriber work in Texas and, and for those who aren't familiar, non-subscriber is a, a state and I think Texas is currently the only one and has been for a long time. A non-subscriber to the workers' comp insurance, and in those non-subscriber cases, we always got requests uh, during uh, discovery for documents like these, especially job hazard assessment documents under 1910.132, where the employer is supposed to go through and identify the job hazards, and then identify ways to eliminate those hazards and develop a PPE certification. Uh, which is, it's not something you have to do daily, but it's something that has to be done. And all these things that we do to be in compliance, you're right, John, they have, they have an impact in other areas. And that's why when we do these things, I mean, my focus would be to do them correctly, to, to be thoughtful about it, uh, to, uh, to avoid just to completing the task, to get past the task. But my goal would be to try to to get it done accurately and make and make make sure it's correct and and provides meaningful instruction that not only in my experience helps with an OSHA inspection but it also helps in those litigation situations where the employer has sat down and involved in rank and file employees and developed a meaningful meaningfully identified hazards in the workplace and then meaningfully identified manner to address those individual hazards in the workplace. 
those those are the more effective written documents. We've talked about this before. If it's just a pencil whip document, if it's cut and pasted off the internet, if it's if if it's obvious it's not thoughtful, then uh, in my experience, when you're sitting in front of a an OSHA inspector or when you're sitting in front of a plaintiff's lawyer, they tend to be more hurtful than helpful. So my preference would be do it right, uh, just get it right. Well, Frank. I appreciate you joining me. Uh, I, I hate to say it. Your last answer spawned another idea for another podcast, which I think a lot of our subscribers or a lot of our listeners are going to be curious about this concept of non-subscribers in Texas. And, and I think that that's probably worth a discussion. But having said that, again, it's been a pleasure doing this with you. I look forward to doing next week's. Yeah, me too. I'll talk to you then. Sounds good. Take care. Thank you for joining us on the Ogletree Deacons podcast. You can subscribe to our podcasts on Apple Podcasts or through your favorite podcast service. Please consider rating and reviewing so that we may continue to provide the content that covers your needs. And remember, the information in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not to be construed as legal advice.